You probably know that Netflix reinvented the video business. You've also likely seen how they've changed the way the world watches TV. But did you know that Netflix also completely transformed human resources as a business construct? In 2009, they were one of the first high-profile companies to offer unlimited vacation. It was a shock to their employees who were used to much more oversight. As it turns out though, unlimited vacation was just a small part of the Netflix human capital management story. Today, we'll delve into the realm of human capital management and transformation. I'm Jason Wingard. Welcome to the Learn for Life podcast. The Learn for Life podcast, exploring the people, the skills, and the global forces driving change in our professional lives with host Dr. Jason Wingard, Dean of the Columbia University School of Professional Studies. I remember the day that the 120-page manifesto was released by Netflix. And traditionally, if you are anywhere in the HR profession or if you've worked closely with the function, you know that usually those types of manifestos and policies are kept under wraps. So the release of a 100-page manifesto that had a bold, unapologetic, back to the basics approach to managing people, what they promise and don't promise their people was breathtaking. It wasn't long before other organizations followed suit. In the human resources community, it was a revolutionary idea at the time, one that made peers in their companies raise their eyebrows and re-examine their own policies. With me to discuss this topic is Dr. Yvette Burton, Professor of Professional Practice and Academic Director of the Human Capital Management Program here at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Yvette, welcome. Thank you. HR has historically been one of the most under-recognized functions, yet most critical to an organization's success. The title's Chief Human Resources Officer, or Chief People Officer, or even Chief Talent Officer are all relatively new. HR wasn't recognized in the C-suite until very recently, and it still isn't in many organizations. We are now seeing the shift. Yvette, can you tell us about this transformation that you see in businesses? Absolutely. It's one of the things that keeps executives up at night the most, and it's one of the most frequently focused areas of interest by the students in my courses. And one of the things that is a common theme is the need for a new consideration of people as a competitive advantage to the enterprise. And so that calls for not only just a new position at the table, new titles, it also calls for new capabilities and a whole host of other considerations that go into enabling the organization from top to bottom and in the ecosystems in which it operates to really be a fair and equitable partner, um, not only to its employees, but increasingly so in the communities in which they operate. So it's a great question, and there's interesting philosophical debates about the differences, but substantively, I think if you were to talk to many of the CEOs, I think it is a quest and an aspiration to combine the capabilities of having the people sciences and more of the technical focus and the business acumen come together in a way where they can compete in the market. So let's talk a little bit about what Netflix did beyond just offering unlimited vacation to their employees. It relates to what you're talking about. They expected their talent managers to think like business people and innovators first and like HR people last. Can you expand on that? In 2017, I want to say, they updated the 121 pages with 
10 pages on the themes of culture and inclusion. And for context, the IT industry is notorious for high turnover rate, burn and churn, especially at the lower ranks. In the industry, the standard is about 13% turnover. Netflix is at 20. And so now where there is an erosion of their valuation as other players like Disney and Apple and Amazon get into the streaming business, there is increasing discomfort in addition to lawsuits about what the absence of rules, the permission for extreme candor, and not having a contract of engagement with employees that sets the tone for collaboration and respect and inclusion. You see the introduction of these more what you would call compared to Netflix, a more traditional ethos. So I think it'll be very interesting as we look at an upside down, a labor market, they're entering a phase where they're competing with other established organizations that are more friendly. And not to compare with Amazon, where the average tenure of an employee is nine months, but I think the entire sector is going to start to think twice and right-size themselves. So I think it'll be telling. Is Netflix the new Google? When I was at IBM, that was the talk about Google, the eight bars, big blue versus the Google, and I think they're both in existence. So I think that there'll be lots of good things that'll come out that'll test common knowledge, and there'll be lessons learned for Netflix as they grow into a more diverse workforce. Hmm, Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of your career. As is often the case, you didn't start in an HR function. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, that's true. My passion for the intersection of people, process, technology was born in the AIDS epidemic when it was named GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And I remember working with then-Governor Clinton, Mayor Dinkins in the city of New York, and working with Margaret Schoenberg at the Department of Health. And it was us, bad Chinese food, flip charts, looking at what we call the butcher board of the incidence of HIV incidents increasing. And it was the first time that government, private sector, and communities had to come together to make real impact. Knowledge management within a corporation is also a very private behavior. Organizations wanting to tap into the collective intelligence or get people to think of the company's benefit first in addition to their own. These are all intimate behaviors. And My career was born out of having an impatience for inertia, a preference for innovation, and being able to affect change that was system-wide. And so after that tour, I was introduced by a good mentor that said, there is a discipline called organizational development, and you should look into it. I think you have a natural affinity for it. And it was through that experience that I understood uh, and gained consulting experience and had CIOs and CEOs and CHROs talk to me about what kept them up at night that were largely people issues that they felt were the organization was not equipped to address and I saw as just multiple system failure. And so being an external consultant, being able to scope, quantify, and deconstruct a problem and make sure that you're coming up with a viable solution that touches lives has been an all, a passion for me. And so most of my work has been consultative at the top of a house with companies that have a bold, boldacious growth and innovation agenda. And so I'm thankful for the diversity of exposures to different industries, different functions. When I engage my students in the classroom, 
helping them look at value capture opportunities across myriad of landscapes is something that adds for rich engagement and learning. So you've talked about the issues that keep executives up at night. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what keeps human capital executives up at night and what they're grappling with. By 2020, which is next year, over half of children in America will belong to a minority race or ethnic group. So diversity is becoming the norm. In fact, by 2044, that shift will be reflected in the U.S. as a whole. So what does this mean for businesses when they're thinking about recruiting, retaining, and training their employees? That's a big worry bead for executives and for parents and students alike. I started my engagement with a lot of businesses and organizations committed to the diversity and inclusion discussion back in the early 90s. And there were three generations of dealing with the issue. There was one, uh, we know there's something we should be doing, but we don't know who we are. And so the whole science of counting who we are and seeing um, how diverse we were. And then, you know, the 2.0 version of that became, let's make sure that we are sensitive and aware. And then the investments in training, because now we have the data to see how diverse we are. And then the third iteration of that was, let's extrapolate the value of our growth of awareness around diversity and our willingness to be diverse by making it apparent to the market so that we can promote it in alignment with our brand and alignment with our recruiting. Well, that was good while the numbers were in a position where the minorities numerically were traditionally the minorities. And we're already seeing the impact of what you're shared. In today's workforce, we have five generations in the workforce. And so this one particular client that I work with needed to, in light of the affordable health care, re-engineer their health care benefits offering. So the challenge in that is how do you have a health care offering that is in alignment with their ethos of providing premium services for all when they have five different needs and engagements of the healthcare system. And so with that, they decided to solve that by giving choice. Most of the workforce experienced it as frustrating as asking for milk and coffee at a Starbucks. Um, the amount of, you know, for, for a long time, there had been a, not patriarchal treatment of healthcare provisions, but relatively simple to see all of the options and what it meant for your family. And employees relied on that guidance and entrusted in their employers. Now they have, at the low end of their workforce, they have employees that are still on their parents' benefits. And so that's not a value proposition for them. And at the other end, as they reconstruct their benefits programs, how do they not unintentionally discriminate against those people who are heavy users? And you also see the reimagination of what qualifies as an insurance uh, benefit like pet insurance, uh, which is a growing differentiator. In fact, at Sherm's conference of over 30,000 people, at least one third of the vendors were related to the healthcare industry. All of those are examples of where a drop or incrementalism was an opportunity for organizations to grow into diversity inclusion in a way that was authentic to its legacy. 
now for the sheer numbers of employees that are entering the labor market and looking for alignment with their needs of their family and their personal values, companies are having to get their head around things at a pace in which for organizations going into a new and dynamic area can be daunting. So I think you'll see more whole changes to entire processes and systems as opposed to just tinkering around the edges of words or policies and practices. So you've talked about the emergence of five generations in the workforce. Something we're seeing with the younger generation, we're collectively calling them the millennials and Generation Zers. They're the ones who are under 35 years old collectively. We're seeing that they want to work for companies that respond authentically to social issues. What guidance would you give to leadership on corporate and social responsibility in light of this trend? The one thing that is true for leadership to remember, especially if they've grown up in a paradigm for corporate social responsibility that is 15 or 20 years old, is that responsibility is contextual. The community and the uh, its appetite and the access that it has in through to an organization's walls, practices, and culture, and the speed at which they can access that is unparalleled in any other time in our history. And so rather than think about corporate social responsibility as the static adherence to policies and management of external constituencies, when it comes to our shareholders, our stakeholders, our prospective employees, our, our university partners, what do they consider to be our responsibility and what is responsible? And how are we having constant communications and constantly validating where we are within those expectations? And the companies that seem to be excelling at this do that pretty often. So these companies that are excelling, the younger generations know how to sniff them out. So if their intended purpose is for public relations or for to cater to this segment of the workforce, then that younger generation of the millennials or Generation Z, they know what they're doing. Yes. They can tell if it's not authentically driven. Absolutely. So how do these companies that are successful implement these strategies with a sense of authentic realness, right. if you will, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to doing this because the data and the trends show that they must do it? The talent acquisition function of the organization is one of the first bellwethers of this, which some candidates call bait and switch. You know, mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. is a presentation. This is often the case in the global defense industry that's really struggling. They come from an era where patriotism and defending democracy and the manufacturing of missiles and bombs were something that they had pride in and they believe served a greater good. Companies like that are now talking about the computing learning opportunities and highlighting other products like a GPS and its ability to help people who are injured on in remote places, the ability of those technologies and capabilities to assist the better good. And so what companies are trying to do that are successful is to pull out those components and areas of opportunities that they believe resonate some of them are doing assessments. Some of them are inviting students in so that 
It's a longer, more protracted exploration and attachment. There's more stickiness. So I think it's, you know, the bait and switch phenomena, you know, where talent acquisition, it shows up is no longer is it just about having souls and seats. It's about, you know, that zero to five curve and helping making sure that, you know, it's a fit culture, chemistry, mission. And I think that those are the companies that are doing it right. But you're absolutely right. The smell test for inauthenticity is something that, whether it be on social media or simply word of mouth, is a keen focus for for, for young talent. So let's talk about another data point. We know that by the year 2030, between 75 and 375 million people may need to switch occupations because of automation. We've talked a lot about this. Amazon recently announced that it will spend $700 million to retrain one-third of their workforce. That's 100,000 employees by the year 2025. It's a company thinking ahead in this era of the future of work. How can human capital professionals lead through this change and create strategies that not only help organizations, but also their own people? That's the question of the day, and one that both in my classes and in my consult with uh, clients is top of mind. Even senior leaders have this question. And the first tranche or the first frame that I think a, a practitioner needs to ask themselves is to be honest with their own capabilities. I've been a part of institutional collaborations at the highest levels in the house with Fortune 50 executives, CEO on one side, CHRO on another, and the CEO committing to all kinds of practices designed to meet the current skill gap. The CHRO asked to execute on that. And when the CEOs leave the room and it's just the CHROs behind, it's only then that the candid conversations about their inability to exercise the data, to be as surgical as as they are being asked to be doesn't exist, not only amongst their teams. And it's not just the case for building their technology infrastructure. It is admitting within themselves and to the degree they feel comfortable admitting their lack of skills and familiarity with these industries that they have to design job opportunities for, create experiences resulting in development for, facilitate university partnerships that guarantee that what's being taught in the university setting is truly resonant in the needs of the marketplace. And so, you know, one is assessing your own potential, and then two is having a real focused and intentional way of assessing what is necessary for our organization to move to the next place on the maturation curve when it comes to digital acumen. When you go into today's workplace, you may not realize it, but the amount of access and leverage of different tools that you use on a daily basis compared to somebody that's in a primary work environment that's just their hands and dirt by contrast. You have an acumen on digital tools and communications that allows you to promote your brand, to get work done. And the insidious thing is, is that through a crisis of confidence, many don't lean into shortening that gap and realizing and being able to credibly lead your organization on the journey of assessment, coming up with career path, competency models that integrate 
into the main vein of the business, how are we going to use digital storytelling? How are we going to integrate gamification and learning in an environment where we have our learners are overwhelmed, have only a minute, and so if they're on the treadmill, a two to three minute video on a topic can have just as much impact as a four hour drive pulling them out outside of the classroom. And so it's getting to the kernel outside of the notion of people as a cost item and more of looking at this as a true learning organization, learning at the individual, the team, but most importantly, organizational level. And I bet that if there was that type of leaning in, you would see more true traction and more scholarship and less salesmanships of the greatest next tool that's supposed to be the panacea. And so, you know, it's a great time. It's an exciting time. And so I hope more people, instead of fearing artificial intelligence, which is really in its early days, now is the time, ironically, that humans are most needed. In fact, the more tech-enabled a company get, the more important those cognitive and formally thought to be soft skills are. And if you haven't figured that out, it's the softest brick wall you'll ever hit. So Yvette, we know the discipline of human resources and personnel management, as it used to be called, has changed significantly over the last 50 years. As we look forward to the next 10 years or even 50 years for human capital management, how do you see that evolution shaping mm, up? That's a really great point. And if I can get my Monte Carlo simulation down, I'll have an answer for you <laughs> next week. But my, my guess is based on what I'm seeing is that There'll continue to be a change in titles as we know it simply because uh, the convergence of technology, the renegotiation of how work is done, and the erase of an executive believing that the only way I can secure the talent I need to execute this is if they're with me full-time and for years. From shareholder value creation down to the partnerships and internships and the experience of learners in the corporate environment, there is an appreciation that people are not just expense items. You take any industry, whether it's B2B or whether it's in consumer products, you take all the people away and you have empty manufacturing floors. Even in the a lot of the talk with manufacturing and the fear of automation, there are certain technologies that are very tactile. The changes are so perceptible, they're sensitive to just human touch, and they cannot be automated. So it's very interesting when you look into the companies like GE and some of the others that have been at this for a while and serve as best practices, you see that there's uh, a focus, there's where you've historically seen HR been people with a deference for the social and leadership sciences. In human capital management, you have CIOs that are implementing digital workforce initiatives that are learning about how they will implement, have adoptions that deliver on the value propositions, merger and acquisitions, increased focus on post-merger integration as the loss of value as where, you know, culture is corrosive. And so human capital management, I think 50 years from now, will be the convergence of every discipline that focuses on value capture or creation in the ecosystem of the business. And because that's becoming increasingly important with specific skills like strategic workforce planning that require a high degree of acumen, 
I wouldn't be surprised if you saw credentialing in HCM um, in, the, in the future, but I'm excited to be a part of it and certainly to be one of the people um, who's able to shape the minds and the practices in this area. All right, so Yvette, I have one last question for you. Uh, you've had the fortune of being in and around the C-suite in a variety of different leading organizations, uh, IBM, Ernst & Young, Deloitte, Lockheed, Martin. What is the most compelling strategic challenge that you have faced throughout your career? Well, my fastball was turning around organizations. Okay. And so as an external consultant, it's easy to deliver that and to appear relatively unscathed. But doing that as an internal agent, a bit more tough. The transformation is something that is thoughtful, that sponsorship is important, that cultural frame, that what is innovative for a Google is not innovative for an accounting firm. You don't want an innovative accountant. And so I learned the appreciation of context, of sponsorship, of especially as a woman dispelling the notion that rewards and recognition come to those that are technically excellent and keep their heads down. And getting out of my comfort zone is not a one-off, but a constant place. And now I love operating in the, in the gray, and I love the art of what's possible. And I've been second line to a CEO that has been first advisor to the White House during a time of transition. And in that context, I had the honor of knowing that our workforce plans would ensure that our nation and our allies would not be caught without the right equipment, and we would not fail to be on, prepared to be on any war footing. So I'm humbled and excited for my experiences and excited by the challenges as well. Well, certainly as an external person, an outsider and an internal person, an insider, you are transforming the field. So uh, it's great to talk with you today. I want to make sure that I am capturing all that you have said today in three succinct takeaways. Okay, so you can keep me honest. Number one, we heard you say that businesses are employing more evidence-based approaches to targeted outcomes. Number two, the significant volume of diversity in the labor market for the next generation of leaders requires more than tinkering with inclusive verbiage on a website. It requires whole system change. And number three, HR is a function that drives the corporate directives with regards to people. The CHRO leads the HR function. But beyond HR, organizations are seeing a need for human capital management, which bridges how people across all areas of the workforce bring quantifiable value to the business. The business owns human capital management. Did I get it right? Absolutely. All right. Well, You're thank credentialized. You. Okay. <laughs> I've passed my Yvette Burton yes. test. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Yvette, for joining us today. We thank you, it. Jason. Thanks for listening to the Learn for Life podcast part of the Thought Leadership series, Talks at Columbia, hosted by Dean Jason Wingard, the author of Learning to Succeed, Rethinking Corporate Education in a World of Unrelenting Change, and Learning for Life, How Continuous Education Will Keep Us Competitive in the Global Knowledge Economy. We want to hear from you. Tweet your questions using the hashtag Talks at Columbia, and we'll answer them on future episodes. For more information about Talks at Columbia and the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, visit sps.columbia.edu.